Millie in the hallway, but I feel like the best way to encourage people to make their way back in is to uh, forge ahead. Uh, I'm, once again, Julian Sanchez, still a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. I am uh, also, for my sins, a, a, a former journalist, so I have uh, taken the prerogative to uh, make myself the moderator of our final panel of the 2018 uh, Cato Surveillance Conference. I am uh, very pleased to have with me to talk about uh, the effect of surveillance on journalism and how journalists respond. Uh, Spencer Ackerman, uh, who is a senior national security correspondent at uh, the Daily Beast, uh, has previously uh, worked at uh, Wired and was the part of the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, team that reported on the uh, Edward Snowden disclosures at The Guardian. Um, uh, to his, uh, his left, your right, uh, Olivia Martin, who is a cybersecurity trainer at the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Uh, Rob Mahoney, who is the Deputy Executive Director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, and Jack Gillum, who is a uh, uh, data-focused reporter at uh, ProPublica and has previously worked at uh, the Washington Post and the Associated Press, and is that uh, rarest of rare unicorns, a, uh, a political journalist with a, a serious uh, technologist's background of some sort. Um, and so I just want to begin by noting that that I think... Partly, you know, because of the student revelations, but also because we are seeing a pattern of uh, increased government willingness, at least in the United States, to target reporters in leak investigations. In part because changing technology has made it so much easier to exfiltrate significant volumes of data um, that uh, there is, I think, a growing awareness of the need for communication security to protect sources. Uh, but also a growing awareness of, of government's willingness to investigate journalists or to make them part of uh, an investigation. Uh, earlier this year, we know that uh, Ali Watkins, who's a reporter with the New York Times, previously Politico, um, was uh, targeted as part of a leak investigation into her uh, partner of some years, uh, who was uh, uh, worked on the Senate committee staff uh, as a security professional, uh, was suspected of leaking some information to reporters. And so as part of the investigation into whether he has leaked, they ended up obtaining uh, several years' worth of her email and phone logs stretching back to her time in college. Uh, we know that under the previous administration, because not all uh, troubling things start with, with Donald Trump, uh, even though sometimes uh, it can seem that way in, in reporting, um, we know uh, the Obama administration looked at... Um, phone records of large press organizations like the Associated Press in search of perhaps a particular leaker, but in the process, uh, I think, exposing uh, in, in a disturbing way uh, the entire organization's, or at least a big chunk of the organization's, uh, pattern of news-gathering communications. Uh, and so to try and get a handle on this and how reporters are responding, uh, I think it, it helps to get a kind of... Uh, 30,000-foot view, not just from the U.S., but uh, around the world. And the Committee to Protect Journalists does uh, really excellent work uh, trying to track threats of all kinds to reporters around the world, uh, in particular by governments. So I was hoping, Rob, you could provide some context for us by talking about um, what, this, the, what you're seeing now, here and elsewhere, uh, in terms of, of 
journalists as targets of government surveillance? It's a growing problem, and I, I'd like to sort of take the global view because we've got working journalists here who can talk a little bit more about the problem within the United States. But first of all, let me, let me say that outside of a very few sophisticated journalists, most journalists are incredibly ignorant about their own digital security, their informational security, and take tremendous risks through ignorance to themselves and to their sources. And one of the things that we want to do with the Committee to Protect Journalists is, is to make journalists aware of just what risks they're taking. We have uh, cases of journalists who are tracked uh, and jailed uh, because they're being surveilled. We have been looking uh, with alarm at the uh, spyware that is now out there, Pegasus in particular. And we've been looking at that as it's been used against journalists in Mexico in the last few years. In fact, one of the journalists that was killed there, uh, uh, Javier Valdez, uh, works for an outfit called Rio Doce. A day after he was killed, they received text messages with links to, to download this software. Whether there was a, whether there was a uh, connection or not, I don't know. But I mean, we, we've also had, uh, in the Jamal Khashoggi case, um, proof that he, that Jamal, was in touch with a Saudi dissident in Canada that had infected communications equipment. And so there are two examples of uh, journalists who were killed who we believe were being surveilled. So this is a very, very... Uh, serious problem. I mean, we've just come out with our uh, annual census of um, attacks on the press, and this year alone, 51 journalists have been killed. More importantly, 33 of those were murdered. And we find that in, in a lot of cases of the murders of journalists globally, they are, uh, they are tracked or surveilled or in other way monitored, not just what they write or, or broadcast, but their movements. And so um, we are looking at ways of partnering with people to kind of raise this awareness. It, it is a huge problem. And, and I'm only talking about state actors. We don't know what non-state actors uh, are, are using equipment. But we, we think that the, uh, the Monk School at the University of Toronto has done a great service to us in, in you know, exposing this uh, Israeli uh, origin, originated spyware. This is Pegasus. Can you, Pegasus. For yeah. those who are not familiar with it, can you say a word about what that... Well, this is a malware that can get onto your devices, uh, it can get onto your phone, it can get onto your, uh, your computer. It's spread uh, through text messages or through email. Usually there's a link and, you, uh, and it's well masked. You think you're going onto a real website or that, that we've had cases where people um, are sending uh, to journalists messages that are specifically targeted to journalists. You think it's a source, you think it's an invitation to a press event. And uh, you download this, this, this malware, un, uh, unbeknownst to you, onto your device. You don't know it is there. We believe that there are maybe 45 states that now have this, this particular piece of, uh, uh, of software. And what I'm saying is that you know, most people don't know that that's out there. They don't know how to mitigate it. They don't know how to take, uh, when I say people, I mean journalists. They don't know how to um, uh, prevent themselves from being exposed this way. Once it's on your device, you don't know. It can activate your phone, it can re record you, it can access all your contacts, it knows where you are. If you're the Chinese government or if you're the Saudi Arabian government, this is, this is gold for you because you can monitor all those independent journalists and you can very quickly draw a map of all their networks, who they talk to, who their sources are, and then you can come down on them. And um, 
These are risks that journalists, particularly in the Middle East and Asia, are facing, and they have very little awareness of it. That's a, so a, a disturbing sort of backdrop, um, and uh, well, the consequences uh, even more disturbing than uh, for domestic reporters. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, since you talk about awareness, whether the folks who are working reporters are seeing a trend in a, in a, a good direction on that front. Um, is it your sense? So you were on a national security beat, you know, well even before the Snowden disclosures. Um, so you were, I assume, kind of even then uh, conscious of the possibility of fairly sophisticated adversaries uh, that might have interest in your communications. Um, but how, how do you get a sense that the, the profession as a whole has sort of evolved over that time? And in particular, I guess, if you want to speak to the, the Snowden case in particular um, as, as a sort of extreme case where you had to deal not just with the possibility, but then your certainty that the most sophisticated imaginable adversary is targeting you. How did you start thinking about that and changing your practices as a result? So it's always good when thinking about security vulnerabilities to reason backward from what you're trying to do. Um, it's also a pretty good uh, approach for, for, being, for expanding your risk awareness. So the goal naturally, protect the integrity of your communications, overwhelmingly protect the identity, location, and so forth um, of your source. Um, from there, I don't want to get into like specific tools, you know, like that, that doesn't really seem to be a great idea. But, you know, a really good rule of thumb um, is to kind of operate, and I think I've joked with you about this many times over the years, that, you know, when we were doing this sort of reporting at The Guardian, when we had the Snowden information, uh, we ended up operating more like an intelligence agency in terms of our internal organization. We did a lot of siloing um, amongst you know, who we shared information with and how. We kept a lot of stuff uh, out of the awareness of the general newsroom. Um, we used different internal systems uh, to, to attempt to minimize exposure. And we just always sort of tried to operate with the presumption in mind that you know, if you were trying to compromise what it was we were doing, how would you operate? Um, in general, since then, um, and I think through you know, no small measure, um, because of the Snowden leaks becoming so, um, you know, such, a, such a worldwide story, um, it had the salutary effect of increasing sort of on two tracks um, risk awareness on the parts of, of both journalists on, on one track and, and sources or potential sources on the other where basically more and more people started being, for la what for lack of a better term I'll call, productively paranoid, mm -hmm. um, where you just sort of took as more of a foundational aspect of, of your digital hygiene, how it was you were behaving, and took reasonable to cumbersome steps, you know, as circumstances merited uh, to mitigate that. Um, it's been uh, encouraging to see that journalists outside of national security, outside of national news, outside of politics um, are, are thinking, you know, more in depth about uh, the degree of which they have to worry about not just exposing sources, but exposing themselves, not just over communications methods, um, but, but over sort of a holistic sense of, of how, you know, you operate online. Uh, Jack and I were joking the other day that, you know, 
ideally, you know, people, you know, covering agriculture right. uh, would be as, as, you know, and I'm sure some of them are. I don't know anyone covering agriculture, so no offense. Um, you know, attentive to, to these sorts of risks. Um, most importantly is that second track where the people you communicate with um, are just sort of hyper aware of, of, of not just risk but mitigation techniques. Right. Uh, and that, um, I mean, that does, I think, I think, bring out one of the things I think is a, an interesting problem, right, which is that you talk about the journalist becoming aware of the need for this. And one of the things that strikes me is the extent to which not everywhere, and this is getting better, but this is still expected to be a problem that the journalists are thinking of in a way that leaves it open that the ag reporter and the national security reporter have very different practices uh, in, in a way that you wouldn't expect, right? A newsroom does not, as a rule, say, uh, okay, reporters, you should find uh, a good computer and set up uh, you know, and install word processing software and figure out, um, you know, how to, uh, you know, what email client you want to use. There's a, um, you know, a network policy um, around providing that capability for the reporter. And I think we're seeing some of that. But is it your sense that this is still something that reporters are very often being asked to sort of muddle through themselves? And I know uh, Olivia can probably speak to that as well. Everyone should sort of feel free to, to jump in, uh, not just the first person I turn to. Yeah, I I'll, I'll just say one. Yeah, quick yeah, thing. go but, ahead. Um, the realities of it, uh, the realities of, of you know doing you know pressurized deadline reporting are such that yes, like the answer is we're all just going to have to muddle through. Um, I've never you know worked at a place where um, every holistic concern I'd like to see about about you know journalistic um, security practices uh, would become. Um, you know, thoroughly institutionalized. The good thing is, is like, just, you know, gauge interest amongst your colleagues and say, we did this once, um, me and a colleague at The Guardian, and just said like, if you'd like to learn more about how to go about securing your information, just like meet us in the conference room at such and such time. We're gonna just basically spend like 45 minutes over lunch talking about some like practical tips. In particular, um, you know, journalists who frequently travel across international borders, um, like at The Guardian, uh, we tried to gear uh, our presentation to, to that sort of thing. But also, a really good idea um, is to turn to people like Olivia, who's trained newsrooms like mine at The Daily Beast um, in particular techniques and, and particular tools. Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing, like, security is hard, and it's, it's hard on many levels. I mean, we can take it, on a psychosocial level, it's uh, journalists are overworked. They are tired. Um, they don't necessarily have the time to like learn a whole new skill set. Um, and then you take it on on the technical level. Um, it's not just difficult because uh, you know uh, technology is hard or you know abstract and alienating to people who are used to working you know directly with sources and on a face to face level. Um, but also just because there is no panacea. There is no single sort of like uh, magic formula that I can go into, say, the Daily Beast or ProPublica and like be, you know, spend uh, a business day with everyone and, and, and then I can leave and feel great. You know, everyone just has the suite of tools that they need to take on any sort of 
um, project in any geographical location with any source. Um, that just doesn't exist. And so um, what you see here is, is a real sort of... Um, uh, there's this like deep sort of uh, uh, knowledge gap where uh, on your day-to-day, uh, your security knowledge might just be uh, at a baseline. But then you take on a new project. Um, you're working with a highly sensitive source. And if you don't have the prior knowledge on these sort of um, source prote- protection techniques that are more sophisticated, um, then you face the first contact conundrum where your source has reached out to you and perhaps they've reached out to you on their, um, on their employer's device. Um, and so they've already shot themselves in the foot. And so uh, in order to sort of inculcate this culture of security, it's got to be something that um, is, uh, permeates the entire sort of uh, all of the verticals of any news organization. Um, and, and it is, unfortunately, the onus is on journalists to then sort of be available everywhere and be very public about the means by which a source can contact them in a sensitive manner. Give, you know, you see uh, really like incredible tip pages, um, like the New York Times tip page, where there are many different methods by which you can contact a journalist there. Um, and there are sort of source protection recommendations that are already there. So this is a sort of landscape that we're all um, responding to uh, sort of as it happens. Um, And we have to do a better job of uh, being more uh, proactive about this, premeditating this first contract conundrum. And so anytime, that's why at Freedom of the Press Foundation, our trainers, we take a really bespoke approach to dealing with every prospective client. Um, before we even talk about the logistics of when we're going to show up at your news organization or work one-on-one with a given freelancer, um, we actually have a discussion about each individual's psychosocial and technical sort of um, hindrances or skills um, so that we can craft a sort of digital security curriculum that is going to be um, adept at um, sort of uh, preventing these really <laughs> cataclysmic problems. You're reminding me, I've, I've had uh, on a couple of occasions with, with journalist friends a conversation along the lines of, yes, let's meet up later. You, you know, you're on signal, right? <laughs> um, and they'll say, oh, yes, but I only use that for sources, who, you know, for sensitive communications with sources. And I go, oh, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's not a great idea. Um, you know, uh, because it's, you're, you're already then, right, sort of volunteering data, right? If, you own, if that's the only thing you're using your encrypted app for, um, then you're, you're, you're giving away data um, about which of your communications to focus on. This, um, that's, that's interesting. So, and, and, you know, you can use um, Signal, which is an end-to-end encrypted um, messaging app, also supports end-to-end encrypted um, Calls, so which in brief means that uh, that the only uh, person who can uh, sort of uh, view the the message or hear the call um, in its um, actual uh, sort of plain text form is um, the endpoint. So the intended recipient of each of these messages. So point A and point B, point A's phone and point B's phone. Um, and so this this is like a really wonderful tool and. Um, 
and exists in, in the same manner with WhatsApp. I'm sure we have some WhatsApp users in the room if we don't have Signal users in the room. But, um, but there are actually a, a bunch of ways uh, that you can also shoot yourself in the foot or shoot your, um, your source's foot um, in, in actually not, uh, not using these tools at, at sort of a pro level. Mm. Um, you can just make the assumption that, oh, this is end-to-end -end encrypted, I'm good. Um, that's not actually the case uh, because you have, and this also you know, brings up this, um, the Pegasus malware. Um, if, you're, um, if, if someone who is trying to surveil you has taken over your phone, the endpoint where everything's sitting in plain text, um, then you have actually given up your end-to-end -end encrypted communications. So there's a lot of actual like expert level knowledge in terms of how to use these tools. So um, putting on disappearing messages. So your, your phone actually forces the deletion of threads. Um, uh, after a certain uh, amount of time, you're actually enforcing your own um, data retention policy, which is really useful. Um, but not all journalists know this. Um, and, uh, and if you're not sort of incorporating it into your day to day, it's going to be very difficult to use these tools and sort of use those granular security properties when it's appropriate. One of the, you mentioned the first contact problem. One of the tools that the Freedom of the Press Foundation has developed that's been very widely adopted uh, has been SecureDrop. Is that, that, that something that mm -hmm. Daily Beast and Popolga both use? Um, so I guess it was actually either the, on the development side or the, the users. Does anyone want to sort of explain what SecureDrop is as a, as a tool for security? The first contact problem being... Um, all right, you've got someone who wants to come forward, but they don't already have a, a relationship with a reporter at the paper, uh, and so you'd like to establish a secure means of communication, but you need to find a way to get in contact the first time. Uh, so, how, and you know, at least in, in the case where you've got someone kind of coming in cold, how does how does SecureDrop sort of address that? Yeah, um, so I'd love to introduce SecureDrop, and then I'd love to have some of the users of SecureDrop talk about how it works in a, in a kind of um, journalistic sense. Um, so uh, SecureDrop is an open source tool um, that um, uh, acts essentially as a um, communication platform uh, between a journalist at a news organization and a potential source. Um, it does this uh, in, uh, it promises sort of uh, the, uh, it promises anonymity in a way that something like Signal cannot. Um, so it uses um, various sort of um, levels of encryption to do this. Um, and we uh, actually, interestingly enough, uh, we first started um, seeing the first news organizations adopt SecureDrop um, shortly after, or around the time of the Snowden revelations. And at that time, uh, developers at Freedom of the Press Foundation and, um, and, and the rest of our team actually kind of had to convince news organizations to adopt um, SecureDrop because people were more nervous um, sort of there was this chilling effect about, you know, the, the pervasiveness of the NSA and, and our sort of lack of agency over it. Um, and so we actually had to, had to convince some of the early adopters. Um, but after the, um, the 2016 elections, my God, our phone was ringing off the hook. Um, there's this sort of um, new appetite um, to, uh, to sort of uh, start adopting what is 
to some extent, like the industry standard of whistleblowing platforms. Um, and so we now have it deployed in um, uh, 75 known news organizations um, around the world. Uh, and, and this has been, you know, in the matter of uh, six years. Um, and so, yeah, does, so the, the the folks who actually make use of uh, secure drops, does anyone sort of have experience with it on the on the sort of use side? Uh, obviously, not not in, in specific detail, but in I, I have, general, I have experience. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's weird. sorry. <laughs> uh, I have experience on, on on a couple different levels. Actually, downstairs, I was joking that I was actually the one who set up the secure drop server when I was at the Associated Press. Um, at one point, having all these computer parts on my boss's desk and the bureau chief walking in and going like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Just don't ask. <laughs> like, we're fine. We're putting it all together. It's fine." Um, we put it all together, and surprisingly, a lot of the tips we got were had nothing to do with Washington. They were domestic, because the AP is obviously a global news organization, some tips about, I won't reveal what, you know, what stories they led to, but some of them from people from quite literally small town America, like a, you know, somebody in a government office who saw something horrible you know, or you know, some sort of malfeasance, and that's how they used to communicate. So I think it was, it was a very eye-opening way to realize like, it, this isn't just for like, the post-Snowden, NATSEC world of people who have, you know, you know, TSSCI information that they want to give to a Washington reporter. Like, there's a lot of people who want to give information. And I want to step back and sort of say, and, and maybe throw um, some uh, IT departments under the bus of respective news organizations <laughs> I've worked for. Um, you know, journalism, at least when I went through journalism school and I started about 11, 12 years ago, every, you know, news organizations, um, I think after Snowden it changed a little bit, but particularly like a metro newspaper you know, in a, in a, in a, in a local city, um, didn't really think about this sort of security problem. It didn't even remotely come on the radar. You pair that with the financial crisis among daily newspapers, you're going to get a IT department that has a, a beer taste on a beer budget. Like, it's going to be, you're going to have the lowest quality Dell laptop, or not Dell, but just any PC that you can get for like 200 bucks. It's going to be outdated by like three major versions of Windows. It doesn't even have security updates. A true story happened once. Um, so they are not even going to re remotely think, oh, maybe we should have source protection. Like, they, they're like, here's a thing that you can type your story and publish it in the paper. Like, that, that is the way that we were taught. That's the way we were taught as reporters. And like source protection never entered my, my, even that phrase never entered my journalistic lexicon in J school. And I think, again, the Snowden revelations opened that up. And now that tools like Signal are more easy, um, I mean, it's a very easy free download. I think that helps. But I think getting into the mindset is like, is really half the battle and understanding, you know, like maybe not what to do, but certainly what not to do. Did you, when you set up SecureDrop, not on its own subdomain? No. Okay. This is, as a, an example of security is hard. One well, thing... Initially, yes, and then we realized that was... Ah, okay, good. Good. We, yeah, um, it's a long so story. just to, to explain what that means, um, what I, I, I noticed a fair amount of in very early implementations of SecureDrop uh, was that instead of having uh, the address be you know, newspaper.com slash SecureDrop, uh, they would have securedrop.newspaper.com uh, as a, a way to sort of demarcate it. Uh, and the, the problem with that, of course, is uh, if you're making an encrypted connection to a website and you're connecting from your workplace, um, if you just connect to newspaper.com, 
may then be not clear what specific page you went to. But if you connect to securedrop.newspaper.com, there's going to be a record in the DNS, the, the, domain, the, the, the phone book lookup, essentially, functionality um, of the internet that shows that you had someone you know, in that workplace who was looking for the secure contact site, not just visiting the newspaper. Um, and to some extent, that defeats the purpose of having an anonymous uh, connection if you think people might be using it from work. Uh, you know, probably not a great idea. Is that something that you guys had anticipated or noticed and sort of found yourself trying to oh, yeah, yeah. talk people oh, down from? Yes, yes, absolutely. So we, um, I, I can answer that in, in a multitude of ways. Um, the first I will say is that uh, if you're interested in, um, in the landing page requirements to be listed on our public directory on SecureDrop, you can visit um, docs.securedrop.org um, to see our public docs where we actually, we, we describe this problem. Um, and, um, and exactly uh, as you're describing, um, uh, this is a, a problem sort of of metadata. So you can recreate, um, like you can, you can sort of triangulate information to identify a source without even having to talk to them, without even having to, um, to know to, to have um, taken over their computer or take it actually physically and, and analyze it. Um, you can uh, know when uh, a tip came in. Uh, you can be, uh, let's say I'm the IT um, person who, um, who is uh, analyzing the network um, of, uh, of a source that is visiting securedrop.newsorganization.com. Um, and, and just with that information, you can implicate a source. Um, and and this is, this is a, a new problem. This is a modern problem in source protection. Um, and so uh, we, uh, to be listed in our public directory as sort of like an endorsed secure drop instance, because we don't own any of them. These are all independent instances. Um, uh, you have to fulfill that requirement. Um, a, a certain uh, level of security has to be on that um, actual tip page that will direct your sources. Um, because we're not only interested in protecting the news organization, we're also interested in protecting the source. Um, we take some of that on in our public documentation. I think we have a responsibility here, because we're talking about individuals, right? We're not talking yeah. about tech, we're talking about people. And it's interesting what you said, that 12 years ago when you started that as a journalist, you didn't know what source protection was. You didn't know that anyone was coming after you. I can assure you, if you were, had been Russian or Chinese or Vietnamese or uh, um, uh, working in the Middle East, you would know because you saw your colleagues, your friends, your family jailed or and otherwise um, uh, oppressed or repressed because of what they were writing. So what you have outside of the United States and Western liberal democracies at first is a government's go after the reporters. They track the reporters. When the reporters get too close to information, they jail the reporters or they have them killed. It's only secondarily that they might go after the sources. Here we have protections for journalists and in Western Europe. So they go after the sources, not the reporters. That's why ignorance of source protection is no longer a justifiable kind of excuse on the part of a reporter. Because the Obama administration used the Espionage Act more times than any other uh, administration before it to go after whistleblowers. That is the avenue that so-called liberal Western governments will now use to shut down uh, journalistic investigation. It's to block the, the exit of information from the government or the lockers of secrets that they hold. 
So um, the threat is different depending on where you are in the world. Well, and, and that's the end run, I think, around the First Amendment in the United States is, you know, we can't stop them from publishing, but we can sure as hell, you know, stop them from publishing a newsworthy piece of information from the public. And, you know, make people frightened to uh, disclose. I mean, I do think for a long time it was the case that if you were, uh, as a reporter, your sense was that your obligation is you don't give up the source because you giving up the source is, you know, maybe as as a practical matter almost the only way they're going to figure out who it was um, in, you know, sort of 70s technology, 60s technology, if they didn't call you from home. Um, And... I think to some extent that's, you know, it's changing. The mindset is still, there's you know, very serious sort of sense of professional ethics and duty around not disclosing your sources, but it hasn't to this, bled over to the same extent into, you have this sort of affirmative obligation to uh, assist the source. And one of the, the real problems there is a lot of sources are not Ed Snowden. Uh, and so a source who is not incredibly technically sophisticated is going to look at the kind of things that are done to, you know, reality winner or uh, you know, other, other whistleblower, Thomas Drake, and say, well, that's not a risk I want to take if I'm not very confident I can do this. Um, so how, I guess, as reporters and then from an institutional perspective, you sort of solve that problem of you don't just have to educate the journalist. Um, you have to sort of enable them to educate the source, um, and ideally pretty, pretty quickly. So I have the luxury in reporting on national security where I don't really have to do that so much, um, so much as I have to make sure that both of us are using secure methods that we feel comfortable using and that work for us. Um, There's, you know, never gonna be anything that tops, you know, in-person contact and, you know, the tried and true little pieces of paper filing system. Amongst the public, honestly, like, so to tie back to the cure job for a second and the the first user problem, um, one of the things that's kind of made me um, somewhat more confident that a lot of um, sort of demand side uh, security has has expanded both in in reach and sophistication um, is that there's just, I'm finding, like, more people spamming through secure drop. Mm-hmm. Um, just for you know, general purposes, like the over, I don't know if there's an actual way of estimating proportion, but like most tips that you get are from crazy people, um, particularly unsolicited tips. So it feels kind of like, uh, you know, in, in almost a sort of civic virtue way, um, healthy for democracy um, that now some of the crazies are submitting through secure drop. Um, it seems like more and more people are doing that. Um, you know, in general, uh, the expansion of, um, of, of mobile encryption tools um, and communications methods um, has also done a good deal of work in getting people sort of habituated uh, to using um, secured communications tools. And then once you make contact, then you can have uh, rigorous discussions about your methods of interaction, the frequency of such, masking, and, and so forth, when, you know, is it time to, to go beyond virtual and, and, and meet up? How are we going to go about securing the transference of documents if that's something that we're discussing? Um, in general, I, I just, I see, um, 
I, I see the point that I, I think we, we do have to move to a mode um, of, of affirmating, uh, affirmatively uh, making sure that, that sources are, are aware. You can sort of do that um, the, the more, um, you know, sort of tailored a la carte. Um, you know, it's different from when you're talking to, to people inside the government than people who have, you know, not been in a, cert, in a, in a situation right. like this before. But it's definitely just light years ahead of where we were five years ago, um, and, and mobile encryption tools have definitely made that so, um, accelerate, I think, that development. Jack, you're, you're, so you're not really on the national security specific beat. Do you have a different experience about trying to, I guess, convince sources that this is something that's worth it for them to do, maybe when they're not, at the time, talking to you about anything uh, yeah, it's, that, that it's sensitive. funny that you mention that because a lot of times I think sources don't realize that they're a source. I mean, at least initially. <laughs> um, I think they, and oftentimes I think, you know, when we think of, of good, like, you know, classic sources like Ed Snowden, like that's a pretty unique, rare event. I mean, an, an incredible one where you have thousands of pages of highly classified material that like, you know, creates this transcendent series of stories. Most often, at least in my experience, outside of the national securities, it's it's somebody who works at a place and is disgruntled, or you know they, they they're essentially a whistleblower. They observe something. They have a document that they got to them that they're troubled by. You know, it, it can be at a private company. Um, I right now I'm I'm helping to rebuild a, or uh, expand upon this team at ProPublica where we cover tech and tech as a civil rights issue. So it's not just social media companies, but it's looking at you know al- algorithms. Uh, big data, how the you know the police use surveillance technology and, and new ways to do that. So th- we sort of span a wide range, and there can be people who are in a local government procurement office who are troubled by something. It can be somebody at Facebook. I think what happens is, is that when you know, there is that intake problem, and I think that's a very lovely way to say it, is you know maybe if they accidentally you know shot themselves in the foot by you know sending you a message on LinkedIn or friending you on Facebook or what have you is it's like, okay, well, we're going to start undoing that and we're not going to communicate through this way again. Like, you know, I frequently had to tell people, you know, please don't add me on LinkedIn. You need to unfollow me on on Twitter. Like, just the easy things, right? And, you know, before Signal, it wasn't uncommon for, you know, my coworkers to, you know, ship from, you know, a different mailbox, like a burner phone to somebody and have them call me or call them on a phone number that you're not used to. Like, Signal makes it easy because you can say, hey, download this, it's easier. I like to say it because it works in both Android and iPhone. So I was like, oh, this is just easy. It's, you know, it's super easy, whatever. And then that's a lot better way than saying, this is a secure way so you don't get caught. Like you never want to get somebody right. scared, you know. So I think Signal makes it easier, but also if they don't know better, just sort of like politely along the way, like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, hey, could you unfollow me on Twitter? Thanks. Can I just piggyback on one thing there? It's not just that you don't want to make sources scared. You don't want to give them false senses of security. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a, you know, a, a good rule of thumb is to just operate it like, you know, drug dealer rules for back for for lack of a better term. <laughs> sure. um, you know, there was uh, uh, there was this one drug dealer in Baltimore who had like this amazing series of of OPSEC aphorisms um, that, for the purposes of this discussion, uh, turned out to just like work well as like. All phones are tapped. All strangers are the police. Um, you're not going to get to like absolute security, uh, and you're you're certainly not going to get to you know real practical information by you know operating on that you know so literally. 
But the more you sort of go into it, um, both on a source end and a journalistic end, um, with that attitude in mind, the, the more you know, mitigation solutions will kind of open up to you. But you, you definitely just don't wanna, I guess this would be a, a way of you know, affirmatively making clear to, to sources when you need to is that like, you just sort of gotta start out from the perspective that like communications you know, are by their nature insecure um, from your end and then just see what steps you can take to, um, to, to mitigate the risks of that. I, w I feel like I would absolutely buy a, a book that was sort of a, a Baltimore drug kingpin's guide to OPSEC because, <laughs> all right, if you're around to write the book, you've, you've clearly done pretty well. Uh, I, I was circling back to something Rob said. Uh, I mean, just talking about the, the I, mean, I was thinking of that, that, old, that old saying, right, the, the prospect of being hanged in the morning concentrates the mind wonderfully. Mm -hmm. um, just sort of the, the, the well, it's extreme and, and often very rapid consequences for... Uh, a breach in, in other parts of the world, um, I mean, you should, you're kind of forced to figuring it out pretty quickly and you find out uh, rather fast if you haven't. Um, are there, you, know, you talked about the need to spread knowledge to other parts of the world where there, there isn't maybe the same knowledge of um, some of the kind of technical tools that journalists in the U.S. are using. Um, but so I'm wondering, well, one, I suppose, what, what are the things that you are trying to get adopted abroad in places where there's even more elevated risk. But also, are there practices in those places where they're, in a sense, ahead of, of us in terms of, of, of the level of surveillance state threat that we can import back? Well, I mean, without going into the details of what you tell someone to, um, you know, make sure that they're not tracked by the FSB in Moscow, I, look, it's, you, you're starting from a very, very low threshold. One of the great wins that we had at a workshop that we did in the Middle East was, was getting people to put passwords on their phone. I mean, that level. Yeah. These, were, these were people living in what is called a restrictive jurisdiction. In other words, they're being spied on by the state and by the police, and they don't even bother to take what we would call basic digital hygiene precautions, the equivalent of brushing your teeth twice a day. They don't do that. And so that's because there's a, there's a level of uh, just not aware of some of the things that can happen. Um, we get people to do that. We plead with them not to take their electronic devices across borders mm -hmm. because at that point you're really vulnerable to actual physical intrusion when your devices are taken off you at a border and it happens here in the United States. We did a report about it just this year, especially if for journalists, non-U.S. citizens coming into the U.S. from the Middle East, from Latin America, and at, at the border stop, the border agent has the right to take your device and it goes out of your sight, and then it's given back to you, and you don't know what's happened to it. We're trying to um, make people aware of that, so it's, 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 a, it's a great risk to you and to your contacts. Um, so you, you're starting from a very low threshold, okay, especially in countries where there's the technology, but there isn't the awareness. So I'm thinking um, countries like many of the Latin American countries, Pakistan, India, the you open yourself up not just to surveillance but to other things. You open yourself up to uh, uh, impersonation online. You lose your Twitter account. A, a very embarrassing uh, stuff can be put out in your name and you can lose your reputation in a society where reputation is very important. Or you, you could be so used to lure things. someone into... Or to lure someone out and to give you... So th these are some of the... It's just that's real awareness. And these are uh, 
human behavior modification things that need to be done. We're not talking about giving people what, you know, excuse me, say about fancy tech, technological fixes. They won't implement them. Mm -hmm. it, has to be, it has to be through, you talked about, you know, hanging in the morning, concentrating your mind. Well, it's fear of arrest. So you look at uh, some Chinese journalists, or journalists in Hong Kong or in Vietnam, they're incredibly savvy because they know if they put one foot wrong, it's curtains for them. They're, they're going to be arrested, and so is their family. So they use old-fashioned spycraft techniques. I mean, they uh, change their routine. They don't, uh, they don't um, get into a habit of taking the same, uh, the same way to work. Mm -hmm. They uh, do not meet people in public places. They do not uh, use uh, most you know, regular kind of uh, communications equipment that journalists use. Um, they use typewriters sometimes, or mm -hmm. uh, you know, very regressive kind of uh, ways of working. And that's, just, that's around the world. Here, it's, um, I, I met journalists here in Washington that uh, use typewriters now because they're that paranoid. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not, not still use writer, typewriters, no, no, but, but I've gone on to, to use yeah, typewriters. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Although, you know, one of the things that yeah, this is thing we mentioned uh, talking offstage earlier is we've been focused a lot on communication security. And you were pointing out uh, that there's a lot of uh, other aspects, there's a lot of other uh, sort of attack surfaces for someone who's trying to, you know, other than the direct communications channel for someone who's trying to figure out what a news organization is, um, is up to. So I was trying to extracts from you perhaps like a, a, some of your, your complaint about what news organizations ought to be paying more attention to. Sure, and, and, and who knows, I mean, we live in society, it's hard to avoid any of these, these things, but I was thinking in this conversation, it would be like, you know, let's say, you know, I'm going to go meet a source or a source is meeting me here in Washington, right? You know, they, you know, they get on the metro, uh, they walk down the street, we meet at a restaurant, you know, we, let's say we go Dutch and pay, you know, our own separate meals. Well, here are the things that just happened. There is a series of cameras in Metro that just got you and with facial recognition technology could identify you at some point. You used your Metro card that's probably tied to your credit card so they can identify when you entered and exited. Um, DC has uh, a couple of surveillance cameras on the street, shall we say. Um, the restaurant now has a metadata record of you and your source swiping a credit card at the same time at the same establishment. And then when you go back, every journalist loves to get their expenses reimbursed. Um, you use a third-party app like Expensify, and it goes on in the cloud, which is a third-party vendor, um, which is outside of the control of a subpoena that the news organization could necessarily fight. So I don't know how we get around that necessarily. I have my own thoughts. That's probably for a whole other discussion. But I think it's just important to be cognizant and aware that you know metadata follows us around like pig, you know, pig pen from peanuts. Mm -hmm. Like it's just this cloud that just is everywhere. And we need to do our best to make sure that people meet up. So maybe, maybe I drive to a source's house or I say, hey, let's go meet at a, you know, an ice cream shop, ice cream shop, a coffee shop down the street, um, and I'll leave my cell phone at home. Mm -hmm. And I'll use an older, my older car that like, I know does not have OnStar in it. You know, little things. And I, again, it's not foolproof. I don't ever want to, to give to a source that, you know, this is a foolproof method of security, but, you know, I can at least try. And if I can get on my high horse on that point, like, this is the point we were talking about earlier. That these aren't, this, these are people's lives at stake. And even if it's not their quite physical lives of, of threat of imprisonment in the United States, these are their livelihoods. 
you know, forget about getting your security clearance yanked. How about working for a local company that has a very strong NDA and a whiff of talking to a reporter and you're out the door? There goes your mortgage. There goes, you know, being able to feed your family. Like, these are, this is deadly serious stuff, even if you don't cover the most high-level national security stuff. And I think we have an obligation to at least try to protect our sources the best we can, even if we don't cover national security. Can I just add one thing to that really excellent overview? Uh, Ride-sharing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is, I don't, I'm embarrassing myself right now because I don't honestly know, you know, if, you know, a company like Uber or a company like Lyft, do they, you know, have to comply, you know, what, what, what are their, you know, internal policies for complying with law enforcement requests? You know, how often, you know, do, I'll now check, you know, I don't know what sort of transparency disclosures um, they provide, um, but we should think of those companies not as, you know, transportation companies, but as data companies. I think Uber, I think Travis Kalanick once, you know, made a point of saying, and this is really, really true, that Uber is a data company, right. because that's really what, what we're talking about with, with, with these sorts of companies. We need to think of them um, and, and expect um, not just different patterns of behavior from ourselves on them, but expect the companies and press the companies mm. to do things like the companies have been, you know, do things like, you know, Facebook and Google and the telecoms have been pressed to do and, and present um, compendia of public information about how they uh, go about uh, honoring or, or under what circumstances not honoring uh, law enforcement requests. The idea, you know, ride-sharing is super, you know, like, you know, I know the earlier panels discussed, um, you know, increasingly networked home devices. Um, we, we should think of ride-sharing in, 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 in the sense of uh, additional attack vectors, uh, things that we can accidentally uh, use to disclose in, um, information about our sources on. I mean, just what a, you know, tremendously uh, rich vein to mine um, not just about, um, you know, the interaction between, you know, your phone and, and, your, um, and, and your habits of, of travel, but um, the patterns that develop and then the discontinuities that could be apparent um, if you have, you know, someone, um, you know, targeted by law enforcement through that. And we have to assume that's happening. I would, feel, I would think, you know, it would be, you know, a very foolish police department and a very foolish you know, federal law enforcement agency and a very foolish intelligence agency that did not view this as an incredibly valuable thing to go about, you know, spying on you through. And so, you know, in terms of legal authorities, you know, Uber and Lyft are not just data companies. They are, I think, for legal purposes, pretty clearly, electronic communication service providers. They're facilitating communications between the, um, right, the, the ride asker and the ride provider. Uh, but so all the authorities that, you know, can be served on Facebook and Google or can be served just as easily on... Um, on, on Uber, and in some cases, uh, arguably, without some of the, the same protection. And to be somewhat cynical about this, but I don't think really overly so, one of the things we learned from the Snowden document trove is just the degrees to which intelligence agencies' uh, legal guardians, um, the, the general counsels at these agencies, will push the envelope as far as they possibly can and come up with arguments for why you know, XY data protection law doesn't apply to them or how far they can go outside of it and then convince the companies because, you know, they're a three-letter agency mm -hmm. that they ought to just comply with what they say rather than saying come back, for, come back with a warrant. And it occurs to me that these are creating, in a sense, a resource that didn't exist before, right? I mean, so you, if 20 years ago you said, I want to know physically where every 
Washington Post report has been going. Um, so 40 years ago, you would have needed a lot of people to do a lot of very cumbersome physical surveillance. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, maybe you would have had to have a whole lot of um, different court orders for cell phone records to sort of track them that way. Uh, but now you, okay, there's, oh yeah, the Washington Post corporate Uber account, done. One, you know, one order, one stop, uh, and, you've, and you've got a, you know, a list at least of everything they've decided to expense. Um, so I'm fascinated by that aspect of, of, of sort of outside communications, um, the, the sort of the vulnerabilities. Is that something, and you both do trainings, is that something you focus on, or is it more, I mean, I realize there's, there's so much in the communication space that um, maybe makes sense to focus on that, but is, are those other aspects things you focus on? Yeah, so I think everyone is, what everyone is, is sort of um, uh, pinpointing is that uh, your digital security as, as a journalist is, is just one, one component of like this holistic security model. Um, so uh, I am a digital security trainer. I am not a physical security trainer. Um, I am not, um, you know, a, a psychologist who um, focuses on resilience. Um, but there are these interconnected and, you know, inextricably linked um, aspects of your security um, that one should take in mind um, as a practicing journalist. So you have your psychosocial health. You have your digital security. You have your physical security. And now you have to have, like, a lot of legal know-how as well. And so there is this, like, vast compendium of knowledge um, that is required, really, to, to do your job in the most responsible way um, to protect yourself, to protect your larger organization, to protect your sources. Um, and so something that we do in trainings uh, is, is to always sort of start off the bat with a, a risk assessment sort of exercise. Um, because the idea is that every single individual has a different sort of risk level, um, depending on where they are, what project they're doing. Like, this is a fluid thing for every individual as the day goes by and as their career progresses or degresses. And so um, in order to, to actually work through this, like, vast decision-making process, the idea is you have to have... Um, you have to go through these um, decisions um, in an informed manner. And so this is the, the sort of disconnect here where uh, we recognize the need for information. Um, we, we might understand the decision-making framework, but it's really hard to, and I'd love for y'all to, to speak to this, but it's really hard to stay abreast keep abreast of all of this information from these sort of four buckets that I mentioned, your legal, digital, physical, and psychological. Um, you know, my focus is in digital, and, uh, you know, I'm a professional, and, and it's hard for me even to, um, to stay one step behind, you know? So... Um, yeah, you also have to look at the, <clears throat> the profile of risk. I mean, this is a spectrum, right? It, it, not all journalists have to take extreme measures to cover their trails and their tracks and, because they're not at, as at risk. But if you're involved in investigative journalism, um, then you are at risk. We've had three investigative journalists murdered in the last 15 months, all in Europe. Um, and they were reporting on the nexus between political corruption and organized crime, whether it was in Malta or in Slovakia, those people were shot. 
uh, oh, blown up because uh, they were getting close to something that somebody wanted um, kept quiet. So their risk profile was enormous, but did they, did they, take, did they take the precautions? In some cases, no. Um, so you go from there to the local beat reporter that's covering the local school board. Um, they may get a leak that might get somebody in trouble, but that's a completely different, uh, different set of uh, profile at the other end of the spectrum. And, and what technical people that train sometimes do is that they want to give you the whole thing. They want to give us as human beings the entire training. It's too much. It, and what happens is you don't do any of it. Um, it's just psychology 101. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me, you, you are in a way pointing to a slightly different problem, which is we tend to think of communication security or uh, security from surveillance as a, a question of uh, protecting the content of your communications or protecting, in some cases, who the endpoints to a communication are. Um, in a way, you're, you're, you're talking about a, a case where really the threat is you, you cannot have an adversary know that you are approaching a particular story even, yes. um, which is a... a a sort of a more wicked problem, it seems. Um, is, uh, do you have any thoughts about what additional challenges that poses or how to, how to do investigative work without, in a sense, making, making that clear? Well, one of the strategies that journalists are adopting is to work in groups and consortia. There are several consortiums of international investigative journalists. Mm -hmm. That has many advantages because you can dole out the work. Reporters can come at the same problem from different angles. You all get little pieces of the puzzle and you can mm -hmm. put it together. And unfortunately, but unfortunately, it's also had the, uh, the result that when one of these journalists is taken out, either physically killed or uh, imprisoned, the others can continue the work. The story doesn't die with the reporter. That's the thing. It's in... in Cryptography, what you think of it as a chow mix, where you are, in a way, trying to obscure um, sort of the where a communication is coming from or came from by having uh, essentially a lot of communications pulled together in a way that makes it hard to figure out sort of what the ultimate source is. Um, so I want to turn to questions in a moment, but I guess maybe before we we do that, I have sort of run down and suggested if each of you could sort of grab. Uh, reporters by the lapel and say, hey, if, if nothing else, remember this one thing. Um, and maybe that's, you know, the answer is, as you were saying, there isn't a panacea, there isn't the one thing. Um, but if there was one thing you could, you could uh, install in your colleagues' brains, um, you have a, a nominate a candidate uh, kind of injunction? Uh, keep an air-gapped computer uh, throughout the process of reporting. Keep as much information germane to a sensitive story offline as you can? Um, actually, the lion's share of trainings we do, I, I would say, like, the, the, the sort of um, amount of time that we spend in aggregate, uh, the lion's share of that goes to just simply talking about account security. So um, uh, using uh, two-factor authentication methods and, um, and having good password hygiene. Typically, this takes the form of using a password manager, which is a tool um, that sort of takes care of memorizing and generating these um, you know, robust passwords unique to every account for you. Um, and and this, what this does is um, it, it is, you know, one, low-hanging fruit that applies to everyone in the organization. 
Um, it's relatively easy to adopt. Um, the t sort of like time and financial intensity in terms of resources is, is limited. Um, and it also uh, does a really good job of thwarting many of the attacks, um, the sort of phishing attacks that have caused some of the most deleterious um, hacks to organizations or individual journalists. Um, so these uh, phishing attacks that are meant to either harvest these um, passwords and usernames or to infect a device with malware. Um, so that sort of awareness training is, is, is something that we always do. It doesn't matter if we're training a journalist on SecureDrop or if we're doing a 101. That's something that we always talk about. If I grabbed them by the other pals, I'd say, Big Brother really is watching. Be smart. <laughs> I mean, sometimes the most, the most fundamental thing is, is, as you're saying, sort of drug dealer rules, just um, being convinced that there is an adversary. Um, I would say the internet is forever and remembers forever. Um, there are countless journalists I know who put sensitive information to plenty of cloud-based services like Slack, uh, a Gchats, a Google Chats. Um, who knows where it's stored? Who knows for how long it's stored? Even if it's deleted, is it deleted? Um, just be very careful and go out in the sunshine and maybe you go talk to somebody in person. Lo-fi. Also, I want to uh, open this up then to uh, the audience and let folks pose uh, some questions to, uh, to our speakers before we repair to uh, the atrium for, right for a beverage and perhaps a, a, a tour of the Dude. American Art Museum. Uh, Jake. And uh, as, as other uh, moderators have noted, questions, please, not speeches. Uh, name and affiliation, if you, uh, if, if you so desire. Uh, and uh, if you are addressing it to someone in particular, uh, say so. Uh, thanks. Uh, Jake Lapruk, Project and Government Oversight. Um, I'm really curious. Um, for tools like SecureDrop, but also in general, how um, you balance out the ever-increasing need and capabilities to provide source anonymity with um, being able to assess source motives and authenticity. Um, you know, how, how can you check against something like a hostile government trying to spread malicious propaganda, trying to sometimes spread disinformation, things like that, um, when you are increasingly, as journalists, need to rely on anonymous um, mm -hmm. methods for sources? That's a good question. Um, I'll take it first. Um, at first point of contact, uh, it's very difficult. Beyond that, I, don't, I just don't deal with people unless I know who they are. I, I, there's, there's even overwhelmingly the case um, that you, know, you, you won't identify someone, but anonymity from you know, the preceding of a story uh, just, just won't fly. I, I won't do that. I think when it comes, I'll just say when it comes to documents. Let's say there's somebody who gives us something. This has happened quite a bit. Um, it would be no different than if they delivered it via the mail anonymously. You know, we want to avoid the George, you know, the Bush National Guard memo problem. Um, but you know, most of these things, but to, you know, most of journalism is like getting a tip and verifying that it's true. So. That's, you know, we got like a great smoking gun document. That's fantastic. Now the real work begins to actually see if it's true. So I, w I just use the old-fashioned rules of journalism in that case. When it, I agree with Spencer, like when it comes to an actual human being, like you need, to, you need to meet me halfway here. And like I need to know who you are and to evaluate those motives. But 
that's the nice thing about secure, things like SecureDrop is if they just say, hey, here's a leaked document, you know, I think the old rules still apply. Yeah, and there, I mean, so there are these sort of, sort of editorial decisions that go into vetting um, and verifying, vetting sources and verifying sort of the authenticity of documents. There are also, um, you know, uh, one of my favorite uh, trainings to conduct is is one on metadata analysis, um, redaction. Um, so, so metadata can be really meaningful for a journalist um, doing background on a source, um, say that they have received a document via SecureDrop, so they have an electronic version of this of this document that they can analyze, um, and then uh, and that can be really helpful on background, and then. Um, and then there is the responsibility of the of the journalist or of the institution to to either uh, to uh, uh, redact the the metadata so that you're not also implicating your source when you go to publish or to and there are a bunch of really ex- obviously I really love teaching this um, <laughs> there are a bunch of really kind of novel ways to to also obscure the, the original metadata of a document. Um, there's never going to be a perfect solution, let me tell you that. But, um, but there are also technical manners by which you can sort of um, add to the authenticity of a source. And this is, I mean, we should, I think we're sort of obliquely maybe gesturing at the fact that, and it's not that she wouldn't necessarily have been identified otherwise, but um, Reality Winner, who is currently in jail for uh, leaking information about uh, state elections boards being hacked uh, to a press organization. Um, the documents that were released apparently had metadata in them that made it, not, not that it, again, wouldn't have happened, but made it much faster and easier for them to identify who had leaked the, the data. So that's a case where, I mean, that really is a sort of a, a difficult challenge in particular because you, you have to sort of figure out what the adversary can use in a document you've gotten. Is this something that you guys have thought of in terms of source protection? All right, we're going to release a document, and what steps are we taking to make sure our source is not unwittingly outed by that? Is that something any of you guys have, have sort of... Have yeah, I think, I mean, look, we, you know, the best thing that we do is often um, if we get a document, even if we even consider publishing it, we will re-scan it or like basically right. send it through the, the copy machine to re-scan it to obliterate any metadata, but honestly, like personally, I can't speak for other reporters, but the reality winner thing really rattled my cage. And like at that from that point onward, I was very hesitant about putting any documents online yeah. because, like, I know, I, and I, I think it's important. I think we have to be as transparent with readers as, as we can. But you know, it's not just the printer dots that we're referring to here, right. where you know each printer has its own sort of microscopic way that it sort of identifies itself. But who's to say that a police chief trying to smoke out a source doesn't like swap, you know, two right. words in a sentence on a page? You know, it's like, oh well, that's the you know that's the the honeypot here that we're and we you know we figured out who it was. You know, in that case, we'll just quote from it or we'll we'll you know we'll paraphrase it or. I, I think it depends. Like everything is a different situation, but I mean, it spooked me. That's for sure. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's it's really important to like balance the the sort of editorial and technical concerns there, and I think like what you're pointing out here is essential. Uh, front row, and then I'll. Uh, Olivia, a couple technical questions to you. Do you recommend any specific encryption technologies? And any VPNs for people who don't have organizational VPNs? Oh, of course, yeah. Um, well, 
You'll be um, very happy to know that if you go to freedom.press um, slash training, um, we have, uh, we have a, a number. And so like, this is interesting because um, uh, exactly the, what you're pointing out is that digital security trainings on like an institutional level, they don't scale. You know, I can't go to, even if I wanted to, work with every freelancer, every lawyer, you know. Um, so, so what we like to do is to, um, uh, to publish uh, original content, um, vetted sort of technical guides um, uh, for a general audience. And so, uh, so we have a VPN guide um, where, uh, and because I, I won't recommend a specific VPN because actually it is, it, it is a bit of a nuanced process to select one um, for, for your own uses. Um, but what it will do is, is kind of outline um, that decision-making framework for you. And then we have some recommendations there that, you know, uh, adhere to our sort of technical and, and other um, sort of uh, requirements for, for us to make a recommendation. Um, and then in terms of um, in, encrypted communications, um, so I, I, I think, you know, we have some really um, great folks on this panel who have all mentioned that they're using Signal, um, which is... Uh, it's an open source tool that's available on the Google Play Store for Android and um, in the App Store for, um, for iPhone. It's also a desktop app if you choose to do that. There are some other sort of like nuanced concerns there. But um, is there something? Um, okay. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> gosh. Wow. Um, so, again, this is going to, it's, uh, the really annoying like uh, digital security answer is it depends. Um, so it's going to depend on your risk assessment. Um, Veracrypt, we actually have a Veracrypt guide that we just published last week. If you'd like to familiarize yourself on, we kind of talk in general about how to um, uh, how to think about what's the appropriate tool to um, to encrypt sort of external storage media or um, sort of partitions like on your computer locally. Um, so that's, it's, it's gonna depend, I'd have to sit down and ask you what operating system you're using, what's the purpose. So, um, but uh, you can also contact us uh, if you have specific desires. I just, yeah. I just wanna come in there because it's, it's, it's an important point that comes out of that, which is that there are resources available, but it's to freelancers that they're really vulnerable. If you're working for a, a, a well-funded news outlet, they have IT people, they have security people, and you have a lot of help. But if you're a freelancer, then you don't have anything. And so um, you go to the Freedom of the Press, go to the Committee to Protect Journalists, Reporters Without Borders, uh, to their websites. They will uh, point you at places where you can get that kind of information as a freelancer presumably without a great budget to buy all this, uh, this fancy equipment. Yeah. I mean, cryptographers like to say this is, you know, it's always a bad idea to roll your own, meaning um, there's lots of sort of open source, well-vetted encryption libraries. And so if you're a company trying to develop a, an encryption solution um, and you are in-house sort of building your own algorithm that, you know, you're making a serious mistake. Uh, and I think, right, probably an extension is, um, it's it's uh, it is probably dangerous if you don't what you're doing to to sort of think you can navigate uh, sort of how to implement something well um, just on your own. So I think yeah, sort of finding resources to um, to sort of help with those things and, and making sure those resources exist is important. Mm -hmm. uh, let's I saw someone in the back. 
Hello, I'm Maka Taylor again. Thank you all for your work, um, first and foremost. I'm not, I believe there is a former UN um, security guard whose name was Catherine Bokovic, I believe. But in any case, there's, are any of you familiar with the movie? I didn't want to reference it, but it's The Whistleblower. It's actually The Whistleblower. And so the information that I got that came out of it, and this is more to the work more so than like the digital footprint, but say she found out that DENCOR and there were other UN high up, like it was a major investigation that led to major outcomes that didn't lead to any outcomes for like civil society. So what do you all feel, or if you could share with me the responsibility of journalists, because for people like me, it kind of seems like I live in a vacuum, and a lot of information that I know is just not known to the general public that could be very beneficial in coming on a court or finding some type of common ground. So what do you all think, the, especially for commercial, um, those of you who are with major outlets, what is your individual responsibility as well as your organizational in terms of making information that may not be in the forefront known or known better in terms of things like the whistleblower where she found actual trafficking and other things that ultimately created complicity between an organization and the UN? I mean, I just sort of feel like that's the job, period. Uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding your question. Well, is there, is there, I mean, are there cases, just to, to tie it to source protection, are there cases where you have questions about whether you can report something out in a way that does not endanger your source and that that influences your, your question about what, you know, is this something that can be reported safely for them? Yes. Um, I have a specific... Without getting into too many specifics... Right, definitionally, you're not going to describe it in detail. Yeah. Um, I came upon... There's a... I have left information out of a story... Um, to the point where it substantially changed the story, made it a story about a different thing that I had to then do additional work to pursue because I had reason to believe that my initial story was so specific about a particular person with enough, even without, um, even without a great deal of identification because of a position that someone was in would identify someone who would be in a reasonable position of being physically harmed because of this. I ended up um, just not doing that story. I didn't think it was, it was worth it to do, even though I considered and still consider there to be a clear public interest in knowing this. But I don't know how I get past that problem, and I'm not willing to put someone in physical danger. So. I just ended up not doing this, um, just very reluctantly not really seeing a way around it. And I think most journalists would probably make that decision. There's not really going to be a story that's worth someone's life. Um, the, I'm sure all of us hypothetically you know, can think of like thought experiments where that's not true, um, but just when you actually have to face a likely circumstance of, of, of someone being harmed because of what you've done, um, the decision just becomes easier. Yeah, I think this is a case where technology and journalism ethics kind of collide. Right. I mean, 
uh, you know, I've been a journalist all my life, and you, you cannot any longer guarantee anonymity and protection to a source. Mm. You used to be able to do that. I mean, Mark Felt remained anonymous as Deep Throat, right, for a generation. I don't think you could do that now. So I think as journalists, we have the moral responsibility towards the people who are giving us information, not to mislead them, mm -hmm. and to make them aware that if they are giving us information, there's a very good chance that they will be unmasked. That makes it uh, sound like a, 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 an even harder job. Uh, I think we are uh, pretty close to the uh, uh, end of our panel. I think we have time for one more, and then I will grab uh, one of our guests uh, and let the panel answer that uh, while I do that. Uh, Alex? I'll be right back. Alex Howard, um, recovering journalist. Um, 2016 was uh, pretty difficult, not just for um, protecting sources, but also figuring out who Sorry. the sources were and what uh, motivations oh, they she might is. have. Yeah, she's right Where? Oh, okay. The question I have uh, for you, maybe for the two working journalists, how is your approach to your job and, and vetting sources and the reasons they might be coming to you with information? Um, whether it's from a government source or from a political party or anyone else, um, is newsworthy? And how are you changing your approach to interacting with those sources, given what we know about uh, how more intelligence services might be seeking to manipulate you and your publications? Speaking for myself, not a lot has changed. Um, the, the job isn't the receipt of information. The job is the vetting of information. And assessing motive, uh, inquiring about motive, and so forth, um, and then doing your due diligence to verify it, that's just going to be there. It, it, it helps to have, again, the thickness of understanding um, that there is deliberate misinformation out there. Um, you know, we started out, you know, from you know, the Snowden trove, just considering that, like, what if this is, you know, a giant, you know, instance of, of potential misinformation? Like, there, I don't really see much of a difference in terms of time. You just, the difference is awareness. But, you know, the way the job operates, you know, whatever, you know, technological changes and technological vulnerabilities exist, the job fundamentally is the same. A great note on which to join me in thanking uh, our panelists. And uh, before uh, we repair, is Ruth? Uh... Ah, perfect. I just want to uh, turn the podium over for a moment to uh, Ruth Greenstein. You are welcome after this to join us for uh, a drink in our uh, atrium, but also if you are interested in joining. Ruth, uh, there's a fantastic uh, exhibition I've mentioned at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and so I want to give you a quick preview of that so you can decide if that's something you want to, uh, to see under her guidance. Great to be back at the Cato Institute. Last time I here, was here, I was a young, dark-haired lawyer working First Amendment issues. Um, how this came about, at least from my perspective, is about two days ago, um, one of your conference organizers said, huh, there's an exhibit at the Smithsonian which is almost precisely in the subject matter of this conference. It 
your conference is on surveillance, and if we weren't being arty and given our, our uh, exhibit a more artful title, we could have called it surveillance. Um, so the thought was, okay, maybe you guys would like to come over and see the exhibit. But in fairness, I thought we ought to let, have a chance to decide whether it really is of interest to you. So I threw together some um, PowerPoints, which I swore when I stopped working I would never do again. Um, and that's not the way you forward it. What did I do wrong? Okay, I see. Arrow. Arrow. Okay, I thought I did, but we'll see. Okay, so what we have at the Smithsonian is an exhibit by Trevor Paglin. Some of you may know of him. He's a artist, a photographer. Um, he, has a, he has all his right credentials for that from an MFA from Chicago Art Institute. He's a scientist um, with a PhD in geography, which is very important to his, when you guys are talking about location and then geolocation and echolocation, all of that comes into play. And he's also an activist. And what I've done is just given you sort of, so he talks about secrecy as a series of constraints. And he's not, he's not trying to disclose secrets. He makes a very clear distinction between him and some of the other folks. But what he's trying to do is look at the whole structure of, the whole infrastructure of secrecy and surveillance. So he's trying to look at the door, not behind it. Now you say I push slightly closer. Oh, talk to the microphone. And which light, which? Okay, I just didn't push hard enough. So I thought I would give you a feel for where he's coming from with two quotes and then give you a few pictures. Um, so on secrecy and surveillance, I don't know if you've ever read any of his articles. He writes a good deal about the terrorist state um, and the rise of the terrorist state and the, con and the consequent decline of our civil institutions. And with the result, as he says, that when something unexpected happens, the government will respond with all of the powers of the terrorist state. But he also talks about the internet, which, sorry, I'm supposed to stay near the mic. He stays near the, the um, he talks about the internet and all of the, the potential it has to be the great boon to, to sharing and communications, but also the greatest threat to sort of civil liberties and the greatest tool potentially for totalitarianism. And I heard the tail end of, of um, the last presentation and talk about all the meta, what they can figure out from metadata and all that sort of stuff. So now I'm gonna show you some of his pictures. And the picture selection are not necessarily his best. They're what I was able to get at the last minute yesterday. And you'll see the format is somewhat different because I stole them from different places on the internet. I don't know why I'm doing, okay, it just takes a long time. So, um, as I said, he was a, um, he is a geographer, and he, um, but he also pays homage to some of the photographers of the last century. And one of them is Timothy O'Sullivan, who was part of the first um, uh, exploration survey surveying team that was sent out by the War Department after the Civil War. And so this is a photograph taken 
almost 150 years, or about 150 years ago, of Pyramid Lake. And it was done for surveillance. And Paglin talks about the 19th century photographers as basically being the 20th, the equivalent of the photo reconnaissance of the 20th and 21st centuries. So take a good look at that photograph. You'll see that the horizon, that the focus is on the water, the land and the water. The sky is not all that important in this. In fact, it's very even hard to see the sky. So now take a look when this comes up at another one, um, also of Pyramid Lake. However, this one was done about a decade ago. And this is, and there are two big differences. There's a third difference, which I, I can't help but point out in that this one has a portage on. But there are two other big differences that are relevant. Um, and that is that the focus has changed from the earth to the overhead. And the other, and this you have to look, you'll, you would see much better on the photograph itself. But if you look way up, up there, what looks like a, a error or a scratch or something on the photograph is in fact the, um, the track of the satellite. And those of you who are scientists know it's not that easy necessarily to find, to find and photograph secret satellites. There's a roster of, real of known satellites, and then it takes a lot of work to figure out where the unknown satellites are and figure out how to photograph them. And so there's a lot of very clever photography, much of which is also quite beautiful. So there's, there are several of this kind of seeing the trail and the tracks of both um, geosynchronous and low orbit and a variety of other satellites. Um, Okay, um, he, is, he is an artist, and so many of his photographs are really, I think, very beautiful. And this is an example of one. This, again, is two identified spacecraft. Um, these are all from the, I think, from the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization. I'm told there are two airplanes in that picture, but I'll be damned if I can find them. Uh, I suppose that's what surveillance is all about. Um, one of the things he talks about is, and this I think would be very um, resonate here, is the ubiquitous, ubiquitousness of surveillance, governmental and commercial. Um, and so he's, he looks often at how does the surveillance instrument see things? What do they see? Because he's also interested in machines writing things for machines. And this one is one of what does the thing look like? What is it if you, if you humanize the camera, what does it look like? And you see a very lovely photograph of a sky over the American Southwest. If you look, when you, if you come to the museum, you will also see that right there is a drone. Um, it's hard to see, but it's there. It's a predator. Um, and again, 
he's looking at the ubiquitousness of the surveillance um, system in, in the United States. Um, after the, um, the, some of the disclosures uh, um, of the NSA surveillance of PRISM and other programs, he started thinking very seriously or more seriously than he had before about the internet and, and the role of the internet. And so he started looking at, no, I went too fast that time. Okay, better. Um, he started looking at the internet and this is one of, he started looking at where does the internet, where are the choke points of the internet? And he has, we have three, I think I'll show you two. This is the one I use because I grew up on Long Island. And that's Mastic Beach. And it turns out that right about where that little um, lifeguard station is, is where the, it, the major cables come, come ashore from Europe. Um, I mean, part again, I think what he's, he's showing is the utter mundaneness in some ways of how we begin to look at, at secrecy and security. And then he's showing you the same thing overlaid on a, on a standard nautical chart, um, along with some things like that, which if you were close you would see, is NSA guidance on how to figure out where the best place to tap into um, any particular cable might be. Um, and there was another one which somehow seems to have missed, but doesn't really matter. Um, go back to and see what I get. Oh, I see. They just came out side by side. Good. This is another one of those landing things, this one, Hawaii. Um, and again, also showing to some extent his background in lands as a landscape photographer on, on that one and well, on both of those in the same place. Um, and in recent years, as I said, he's become much more focused on the internet. And so I thought I would show just as the last, um, hmm, yes, thank you, uh, the last of the, of the photographs before you make your decisions whether to walk a few blocks south with me to the museum, is a box which will not be a surprise to any of you, but it is to an amazing number of Americans, particularly um, middle-aged Americans. And that, that's, that's an anonymizer. It's using Tor technology, um, which I, I infer is pretty similar to what my company used 10 years ago when we bought anonymizer. Um, basically, it'll, it defeats uh, metadata analysis. Um, but kids love to come on, take out their machines, log on to this, and see that it's not, they're not on the normal network. They're on a network that won't, in fact, be tracked. Um, he's also, and there's a section of the exhibit, which I haven't talked about, where he starts to look upon about artificial intelligence. And then some wonderful photographs of what the machine sees as it's learning um, gradually, and how that changes, and how bizarre or metaphysical or nightmarish some of those becomes. And those are some of the, I think, from a photographic point of view, some of the most interesting. So I think, I hope, I've given you enough to be, for you to be able to decide whether you want to walk down a few blocks and 
join us for a walk through the exhibit. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. Uh, I hope. Uh, I hope.